Welcome once again to another Björkness podcast from the Björkness Center for Climate Research. I'm Stephen Outen, along with my colleague Ingil Pilskog. Today we're discussing improving prediction capabilities in the Arctic. Recent decades have shown greater warming in the Arctic than anywhere else in the world. This has led to unprecedented change in the region, including dramatic sea ice loss, changes in ecosystems, and even impacts on weather systems that extend down to the mid-latitudes. The Arctic is also a special place for weather forecasting, with many unique challenges. Weather prediction models have always shown low skill over this region, but with growing socio-economical concerns in the Arctic, improving predictions of that remote location is a profound value to society and a challenging scientific problem. Today we're joined by Marvin Kernet. Hello. PhD candidate at the University of Bergen who's tackling this problem. Marvin, welcome. Hello, thank you for this opportunity. So let's get started. Why is weather prediction in the Arctic so difficult? So basically it has two sides, which might be a problem for any kind of model all over the place, all over the world, but it is especially challenging in the Arctic. So the first part would be observations. So in order to run a model and to verify a model, you need observations and they should be high quality as well as of many different locations where you actually want to model, which domain you're interested in. And over the Arctic, we don't have such a high cover of um, observations. No, we don't have such a network that we, for example, have in the mid-latitudes and also satellite products are harder to interpret uh, over Arctic regions. So both the verification and the initialization process is a problem in the Arctic. And furthermore, we have um, parameterization schemes that might have been developed initially for the mid-latitudes that are applied also in the Arctic regions, which are not too suitable for that. So we have a lot of problems associated with small-scale phenomenons that can have a huge impact on the weather, especially on weather that is interesting for the Arctic region, which we call high-impact weather, be it polar lows, be it maritime icing. Um, that are highly influenced by this parameterization scheme that have large uncertainties in weather prediction. Okay. In previous podcasts, we've heard how these models, uh, both climate and weather models, are basically made of two sort of halves. There's a dynamic system which deals with large-scale features that are resolved on the model grid, but they also have uh, smaller-scale components, the, the physics of the model, and this handles all of the... Uh, estimations of physical processes which are too small to be represented by the dynamics. So when you're talking about physical parameterizations and problems there, you're saying that there are problems in these sort of smaller uh, physical estimations. Exactly. Exactly. That point that there are processes that are not resolved, as you just said, by the grid scale, but actually happening below. So estimation, probably simplified uh, estimations of the real complex processes and exactly these are causing problems in Arctic weather forecasts in particular. It's an interesting question for our listeners but how did the two halves interact? So basically what you have, I mean you have your model that con- that has a finite resolution and everything that you just described in the dynamics is happening there due to physical constraints, physical formulas and we know what is happening on the grid space uh, due to our formulations of the physics and the atmosphere. However, there are a lot of processes that we can't resolve that way that still have an important application of what is happening on the grid scale. So we can have, like, for example, wind flowing over a forest, over a grassland, over a city. 
all of these different surface types can actually influence what is happening with the wind and with the whole profile and the atmosphere that we see in the model. But these sing simple single things are not resolved in the model and therefore we need estimations. And that is what I guess would just be described as the physics, as the physical parameterizations. So we know that the model has these two components, dynamics and on the grid and the physics, the, the smaller uh, unresolved components. Obviously, they pass information backwards and forwards, and this is done through tendencies. Yes, that is definitely one, one way one can say it. You could also look at it at the temporal change of a variable that can be split up into a dynamic contribution and a physical contribution. And that could be called a tendency. And this is just the change of this variable per time step. And the physical contribution can then be split up into the different schemes that consisted. So you have you, you have a, this as a sum of the contribution of turbulence, radiation, cloud, shallow convection, for example. And those are then the single tendencies. And that is exactly what I'm looking at. So the single contribution of these schemes to the big picture. So temperature, for example, over the whole model array for every good point. That is exactly what. Okay, so at any time, the model takes information from the large grid in the dynamics pass it across to, and it will calculate, for example, the temperature at the next time step. And then it passes this to the model, to the physics schemes, and the physics then adjusts this temperature and passes it back. Yes, that and, happens per time step. And this is done through tendencies. Yes, and that is exactly what I'm working on. So exactly what I'm working on is what you just described. You have the grid scale variable. It gives it its information to the radiation. And the radiation looks at, okay, what kind of clouds do we have at that time step? What kind of moisture do we have in the atmosphere? And then it calculates a, ten a temperature tendency, so a change of the variable per time step. That is what you could call a tendency for this one scheme, for radiation. And then this goes on to the next process that is actually represented in our model. Might it be turbulence? Would it be convection? Would it be microphysics in the clouds? So all of that can sum up. And now the crucial part is that all of these processes, yes, we know in theory how they work, but how they are represented in a model is a totally different story, and how they also interact with each other is a completely different story. And that is, as, as, yeah, that is exactly what I'm working on, to see the interaction. So if we've got a good idea of how these schemes work, or how this process works, you know, should work correctly, physically speaking, um, why is that a problem in the model and why is it particularly bad over the Arctic? <laughs> um, so, there, yeah, so there are several problems that we can have in the Arctic. So, um, just just think about how um, the atmosphere is has different layers in our conceptual thinking of how it works. So, we have different layers in the atmosphere. At first, you have close to the surface, you have the vicious sublayer then you have the surface layer, then you have the boundary layer, and then you have the free atmosphere. And all of these layers, even though probably not being properly physical, we assign with different characteristics that what they have. So for example, the surface layer is also called the constant flux layer. So temperature, uh, heat, and uh, momentum fluxes are actually approx approximated to be constant there. So what we did in the model was, okay, between the surface and the first model level, we have the surface layer. That was fine for the mid-latitudes. It worked. The first model level would be around 11 meters, for example, in the model I'm working with. So that was a good estimate to have that. So you have a constant flux layer there. In the Arctic, however, your atmosphere can be far more shallow compared to that, which means that the 
constant flux layer, the surface layer, would actually be located at the first few meters above the ground, while the model still treats it by being ending at like 11 meters. And this constant flux layer, for example, is, serves as an estimate for wind and temperature profiles, which have a logarithmic shape after the, this theory, which is totally offsetting in the Arctic. This is the one problem. So in that case, it's, the situation is, is that we've developed our weather forecast models to predict weather where we care about in the mid-latitudes. But when you apply it to the Arctic, it's quite a different environment and the same assumptions going in aren't working the same. Yes, and especially what is important for the Arctic and the interest towards weather forecasts in the Arctic is it's not that people like, for example, stakeholders that think about, okay, now with something like the change in the Arctic that you just mentioned in the beginning, it's going on, we have enhanced tourism, enhanced exploitation of resources, enhanced aviation, transportation. They are not always interested in these large-scale weather events, so bluntly saying it's cold, it's snowing, it's dry, but it's actually in this singular high-impact weather cases. And in the Arctic, they are highly susceptible to this parameterized processes, which have, have these large like offsets or large deviations from reality. And that is like the problem. So they are interested in polar lows. They are interested in maritime icing. And that these and, and, and they expect that when they have a weather forecast for the Arctic. They don't expect cloudiness, for example. They expect the aviation wants to know, is there low-level fog? Is it persistent? Will it, will it take over the whole day and we can't land? So, and since that is susceptible to the um, parameterization scheme, this is the problem in the Arctic from forecasting. Okay. Question obviously becomes, what are you doing about it? Are you building brand new schemes yourself? That seems ambitious. Or are you getting them from somewhere? And how yes. does this work? No, I'm not building a scheme myself. My work will consist about seeing the impact of a new scheme in a model. And therefore, what is uh, cr crucial about this is that I'm working with a weather model that is operationally used right now, every day. It's the Rome Arctic model. It's run by Met Norway and the, the Harmony model group. This is the uh, Rome model. It's developed in multiple Met services across Europe. It's widely used. It's one of the biggest weather forecast models in Europe. It's, it's in many ways the main one. And um, it's used by Norway, of course, the Metna service, but it's also used by many other countries across Europe. And you're actually working with this model. Yes, I'm working with this model. And what my work essentially is right now is that I have a look into the interior behavior of the single tendencies, what we call it, of the physical parameterization schemes. So what we have, I named in the, like a few minutes ago that we can have radiation, convection, turbulence, and all of them can influence each other. And that is now a very crucial point in the model because what the forecasters or what the, 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 the people <laughs> want to have is a good forecast, so a good forecast result. They don't particularly care, for, for example, if that model is actually physical. It should be a good result, a good forecast. So, so what is done is in, in the beginning you have a model, you have a nice clockwork and everything kind of works, but the time is slightly off even though it looks good. So what you do is you change, you change the clock, basically, you, you retune it a bit, that it better fits what you think is right, but the interior might actually be a mess. And that is what I'm looking at. So I'm looking at the interplay between the different parameterization, what is happening on the subscale and not what we see in the output. So what you're saying then is that you need the experience to get some good hunch of what is right and how to tune it. 
that would be nice. There are different approaches how to tune a model, and um, the uh, just few of them actually consist of you look at the scheme, you think okay it was designed for for example representing the stable boundary layer. There are some parameters I shouldn't touch because it really makes the scheme unphysical, and there are some parameters I can touch. What is actually, that would be nice if you would just touch the parameters that are there for tuning, basically. What has actually happened is that a lot of things have been tuned. A lot of things that turn schemes and their behavior into something that gives us nice results for the moment, but has a very big problem when we actually want to improve and develop the model further. Because now it's doing, it's, it, it, its original framework might not even be applicable anymore. So these schemes originally, um, my understanding is that these are often developed during uh, periods of intense observation. Uh, a team will go out to the Arctic, set up a mast, take uh, a lot of very precise measurements, and then based on the physics dynamics, the understanding, people will design uh, an approximation to one of the physical processes like turbulence. And they'll design this, and this is then published into the literature. This then gets put into the model, but it doesn't work so well, or rather it's physically correct, but it's the overall model output is not as good as we'd like, and it gets slightly adjusted through this tuning process in order to improve the weather forecast. Yes, and especially what also is a problem is the good that you do, that you mentioned the distinct campaigns where you then use the data to develop and tune the scheme itself, but if you implement it in the model, you expect it to work everywhere. You expect it to work during the day, during the night, mm. over water, over glaciers in the Arctic, over mountain ranges, towns, whatever. It should work everywhere. And this is this is very, very hard to accomplish. Very, very difficult. And of course, you could build a different scheme for any kind of type, but then they would actually be able to communicate in the transition zones. So it gets very, very complicated and messy. So that is actually the problems that we have with this scheme. It's not that we're doing that deliberately. <laughs> no, it's uh, so in essence, one simple analogy of this is if you have something like a very large clockwork mm -hmm. clock you've suggested, you're effectively saying that this particular cog, this one cog, is actually better if we replace it with a different cog that's more physically realistic. We put that in, but then the whole clock is just slightly off on time. Yes. And that's when we adjust the time settings on the clock. And that is, that is the problem. So what we would have is you can think of a gear. Yes. And the gear that was actually in the clock until now was missing two teeth. Yes. But we adjusted for that. We, we, we fixed it. We glued another teeth to another of the gears, right? So that they would still match nicely and everything worked. And now we're actually putting in another gear that has all the teeth and should be super nice, but now is actually conflicting and, and working against other schemes, severely deteriorating actually the model performance. So that is something that is also a little hard to grasp. So while, while, I'm, while we, as a general, try to improve the physics, when we first implement a new scheme, it can actually worsen model performance so, quite strongly. So even putting in a physically more realistic and a, and a better uh, physical scheme into the model can actually make a model worse, not because the scheme is wrong, but because its interaction with other pre-existing older schemes it causes problems. Totally correct. And these interactions, on if they are well documented and we know them, then it's fine because then we can readjust it. But in, in terms of tuning, in such highly complex models as you tune one scheme and then something doesn't work anymore, so you tune another scheme. So for example, you you have 
far too much moisture in your atmosphere, so you tune precipitation efficiency, which again triggers something with the surface scheme, which again triggers something else. So you're over the time you 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 turn a lot of bottoms and you can't really relate what actually is the effect in the end in your model. So so this this is called error compensation. You compensate one error in the model by another error in the model. So two errors working against each other. And if you now take out this one error by more physical scheme, this other error that you didn't think before was there because you didn't see it because the model actually provided you with good results will now starting to pop up. Yeah. Why were Going back to an analogy of a clock, why was a cog put in missing two teeth in the first place? Why are there bad schemes or weaker schemes in the model to begin with? Oh, yeah. So... <laughs> um, Computing power. Uh, yeah, so the, the first problem that we have was that our, our computers weren't always so powerful as they are now. So we had to make restriction on what was actually modeled. We couldn't make in the scheme that required six hours to be resolved by the computing power if you want to have a forecast on hourly basis. So that was the first restriction. And the second restriction is that that that, that schemes are developed and the developers say distinctively this scheme should just be used for, for example, the dry convective boundary layer over uh, the mid-latitudes, over Europe, over France, for example. This is what it's designed for. But before, because it provided so nice results and was well written, it was just taken to another domain and was like, like adjusted to some extent. And so it's 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 not. It's not designed for the purpose, no. but it's been used for it out of necessity. Yes. And these schemes, I mean, some of them are actually quite old as well. They were developed sort of back in the nineties, and they're still being operationally used in the models. Yes, they are. That is actually. I mean, it. it that is like essentially one is a little reluctant to just change out a working system. I mean, if you, if you say something like never change a working system, that can actually very nicely apply to a model because when it does reply, uh, uh, when it does give you a good result, why would you change it even though it's unphysical or bad in the interior? This is just like kind of the, the, the threshold that we have of status quo and actually making it better. And that's that's for me the, the, the big problem here. So if you if you do all the tuning, you're getting better results, but actually making this one leap forward is, is going to be a huge problem. So I guess they are still implemented because they are easy or they are. we have the computational framework for it. We know how they are working. And this is just the reason why they're set in place. Okay, this sounds incredibly complicated yeah. and a very delicate process. Um, you're actually just starting your second year of PhD. <laughs> this seems like a lot to put on your shoulders. But you're not working on this alone, are you? You're actually part of a larger international project or national project. Yes, I, my work is embedded within the alertness project, which has a lot of collaborators around Norway as well as internationally. And it's a very huge endeavor to improve weather forecasting in the Arctic region. And the nice thing is it is such so big, it's not just focused on this one aspect of improving model capabilities, so actually focus on modeling itself, but also tackles themes like verification or data assimilation or communication of Arctic weather to the public. So we have a lot of people working in a lot of different fields that in the end all collaborate towards this topic of improving weather forecasts. And also for, for of course, the, own, the work at Package I am in, I have a lot of people working on actually implementing something new into the model. And my part will be in 
assessing how this changes the models interior you're working. And so if we see that the model shows very different temperature fields, for example, I can then tell this is because this scheme now reacts in a different way than it did before to this new parameterization scheme. So what I'm doing is I'm looking in the inside. I'm not looking at the outside of the model, but it gives us, you see temperature, you see humidity. I see what is happening inside. What is doing, what is this one scheme doing? Your PhD, how are you enjoying it? It's great. Okay. It's <laughs> fantastic. So um, what is, okay, so I'm, I'm in Bergen, right? That is like nothing to say more about that. It's great, whatever. Like living in Bergen is great. The university is great and the topic is great. Um, the bad points? The good points? The good points is that you get a task and the task is massive and then you can start working on it however you want. And then people, of course, guide you left and right what might be a good way or a bad way, but you are super free in what we're doing. So that, that is a lot of fun in, in, in working in science, especially like that. And, and the trust that people put on you, especially at this relatively young age when you start the PhD, they, they look at you, they give you the task, they talk a little bit with you, and then they say, yes, you can do that. And like you just said, I mean, it is kind of a massive task, and error compensation is, not, is something that hung around in model development for years. And it's, there's no clean solution towards that. Otherwise, we wouldn't have the issue, right? So that is a little bit... This is so such a nice feeling to, to, to know that people trust you with that. The downside of a PhD, aside from, of course, all the organizational stuff that one needs, you, you have to sign in this document, why didn't you give me that letter? And I have never heard of the letter before. That is something else. Um, is just related to work. So I'm working with a numerical weather prediction model that is operationally used that 100 people programmed. It is a massive piece of code. And the documentation, even though it exists, might exist in several languages, uh, which is the first problem because the core was French, then there were some add-ons in Dutch, and then there was some Arctic add-ons in Norwegian. And um, the model community also in, in Europe is like highly collaborating, but also highly diverse, of course. So that is, that it, it's, it's hard a to maneuver in the model itself with, without brute forcing whatever, like looking at every routine and go through it, what it tells me. Yeah. Okay, so we're coming to the end of our podcast. If I can, just one final question. Uh, is there one piece of advice that you would give for other students, either PhDs or perhaps masters and undergraduates looking to do a PhD? Is there one piece of advice or one thing you wish you'd known at the start? Don't be afraid to ask questions, especially to your supervisors. Uh, I mean, that's like your, what is expected of you when you're a PhD is that you're actually providing something new and you tell people something that they don't know yet. And in order to get at that point, you need to gather a lot of knowledge. It's not like you are in this exam situation and you always feel a little bit weird when you ask questions and stuff like that. No, it's actually and to get going, ask a lot of questions. And when you have a topic that you're working on, that you know the expert in your institute, go to them. They are happy to talk about it. It's super nice. That, that is, I guess, the best tip to be done. Ask questions. Excellent. Marvin Kanner, thank you for joining us today. That's all the time we have today yep. for this podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show. Tune in again next month for another Björkness podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you.
You have known by listening to a podcast from Birkner Center for Climate Research. The center is a collaboration between the University of Bergen, Norwegian Research Center NORS, the Nansen Environmental and Remote Sensing Center, and the Institute of Marine Research IMR. The music is from Lee Rosevere, Arcade Montage, BY 3.0. Editor and responsible for the podcast is me, Engel Pilskog, Associated Professor at Western Norway University of Applied Sciences.